whenever you come to any text, the first question that you need to ask as part of your interpretation is simply what is the text? Before you're able to read the text so as to interpret it and establish the meaning, the very first question you need to ask is what is the text? In part, this is a question of delineation. Where does my text begin and where does my text end? It's a question of where is the unit of thought? When we come to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that question of delineation is perhaps harder than you might think. Consider, for example, simply the observation that this is one sermon. Jesus preached these three chapters in one sitting. And so, therefore, there is a sense in which five, six, and seven are the thought. There is validity in approaching this text, preaching it here as one sermon. I don't intend to do that today beyond the holistic thought, the individual ideas are somewhat self-evident, but again, there are points where we run into difficulty. Think about the Beatitudes. Should we take these to be one single unit of thought? Should that be the text? Or should we divide them down into individual Beatitudes, each one being its own theological statement? And if not individuals, then what? Would it be pairs or maybe three at a time? These are issues that you have to wrestle through. Whenever you come to read and interpret a text, the first question you need to ask is, what is the text? What is the unit of thought? When you approach the Sermon on the Mount with that question in mind, what you realize somewhat surprisingly is that the very first unit of thought in this entire sermon is verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 that we might pass off as incidental details, in fact, encapsulate the very first unit of thought. Matthew is not simply telling us what Jesus did just so that it might be a nice-to-have piece of information. He is giving us, in verses 1 and 2, theological truth. Now, maybe that is surprising to you, unless... You've been tracking with Matthew thus far, and you've seen his proclivity towards Old Testament theology. If you've been with us through this series, you'll know almost every single week we find cause to refer to an Old Testament text that either Matthew quotes verbatim or he alludes to. Matthew was writing originally for a primarily Jewish audience, and so he was not fearful to go back to the Old Testament Scriptures so as to prove to them that Jesus was the long-awaited-for Messiah. And so he always draws on Old Testament theology so as to make his point, it would seem, and verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 are no exception. Specifically, what Matthew is doing here is he is leaning on 
tapping into, borrowing from a theme that is prevalent throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, one that centers on the mountain. Summarized, that theme in the Old Testament is one wherein we see that God was often pleased to use mountains so as to signal a movement forward in redemptive history. Many times in the Old Testament scriptures, God chose the mountain as a point of revelation in order to signal that he is moving redemptive history forward to its culmination of people dwelling with him once again. So it is not incidental when Matthew notes for us that Jesus went up the mountain. He is intending to communicate theological truth to us. Specifically, Matthew is including this detail so as to flag, so as to anticipate, so as to signal the coming kingdom. Jesus went up onto the mountain, and with that statement, Matthew is making known to us that this sermon and this man and all that is to follow is in some way anticipatory of the coming kingdom. And as we think about that coming kingdom this morning, we will learn more of the teacher, that is Christ. We will learn more of his teaching That is the sermon. And we will learn more of those being taught. That is, his disciples, namely us. So what I want to do this morning is just look at these two verses from a number of different angles to understand more fully how it is that these details are theologically significant signaling the coming kingdom, and in so doing, learn more of Christ and his teaching and his disciples in the hope that our love for him would increase, our understanding of his teaching would increase, and our faithfulness as his disciples would increase. Beginning then with the teacher. From these two verses, what is it specifically that we learn about Jesus? We affirm, as we've already rehearsed this morning in song and in prayer, we affirm that all of Scripture is God-breathed. This is the only book in the history of the universe that is inspired. Every single word has been given by God, For that reason, we proclaim that it is inerrant, without mistake. We also affirm that it is sufficient. God's word is sufficient for us to live lives that honor him. It is also to be authoritative. These are the doctrines of bibliology. This is what we believe about the Bible. When Matthew records these details of Jesus ascending the mountain, these are inspired words. They are not to be glossed over. He is recording for us and impressing upon us a theology. Now, I want to be very clear. I don't deny that Matthew is recording history, historical reality. He is telling us what Jesus did and where he went. And at the same time, I don't want to deny that 
in part, Jesus most likely went up onto a hill so as to teach in order to be able to project further. These things are practical realities. But you always need to consider the fact that the authors of Scripture had options. The Holy Spirit is carrying them along to record the words that they write down. They have options. There are many things that are historical realities concerning this moment in Jesus' ministry that Matthew did not record. Matthew did not tell us what Jesus was wearing that day. He never tells us what color Jesus' eyes are. He didn't tell us what Jesus ate for breakfast that that morning. We could go on. There are thousands of details that Matthew neglects to tell us. One of the details that he does tell us is that Jesus went up onto a mountain. And so, at the very least, we need to consider if that would be theologically instructive for us as it sets the context for the next three chapters of teaching. And the answer is yes. There are many mountains in the Old Testament. Perhaps the most prominent one is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. And as you know, it was Moses who went up to Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. And the very first thing that Matthew seems to be doing in verse 1 of chapter 5 is to forge a connection between this man, Jesus Christ, and Moses. Matthew wants us to understand Jesus in the likeness of Moses. The reason why it's likely that that's what Matthew is doing is twofold. First of all, Those words, he went up on the mountain, are also found in the Old Testament only three times. In the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures, they're only found three times, all in the book of Exodus. Chapter 19 and 24 and 34, referring to Moses, exactly the same words, Moses went up to the mountain. So Matthew seems to be forging this this connection between Jesus and Moses by virtue of the words that he chooses. Additionally, another reason why we understand that that's what Matthew is doing is because thus far in the four chapters that we have covered, you'll remember that the Moses allusions have been strong. They've been prominent. They've been consistent. It seems on a number of weeks as we've worked through the prologue, there has been very clear allusions back to the life of Moses. Chapter 2 is a particularly pertinent example. As Herod sought to kill this infant and he, he killed all of the infants at that time and Jesus with his parents fled to Egypt. The text is saturated with allusions going back to Moses and the days of Pharaoh. So because this is what Matthew has been doing thus far, it seems reasonable to conclude that in chapter 5, verse 1, when he writes the words, he went up on the mountain, he is impressing upon us again that Moses correspondence. Now that's actually the easy part. The difficulty is understanding why. 
It's relatively easy to see the connection. The difficulty is understanding why would Matthew be concerned to do this? The answer comes by thinking about Moses and his giving of the law from Sinai. It is critically important to remember When Moses went up onto the mountain and received a law to give to the people, he did it to a people that had already experienced the saving love of the Lord. He did not give the law to the people while they were in Egypt as a means of soliciting God's saving grace toward them. That is not where the law comes in Moses' ministry or in the life of ancient Israel. Long before Moses was a teacher, he was a redeemer. Moses had been chosen by God. He raised him up to go to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. And through Moses, God worked so as to open up the waters and bring his people out of bondage. They were a saved people in the sense of being physically redeemed from slavery. They had already experienced the saving love of the law. I wonder if you notice in the reading of the Ten Commandments this morning how it begins. I am the Lord your God who saved you out of Egypt. That is the first note that is sounded before any imperative is given. And thus it is critically important as this correspondence is forged between Jesus and Moses that we understand long before Moses was a teacher, he was a redeemer. It is exactly the same with Christ. Before he gives these commands, he has shown himself to be a sufficient savior. Just a few weeks prior, we thought about the effectual call of those fishermen. He utterly transformed their hearts with a word. He saved them. He did not give to them a law to obey prior to that effectual call. He is a savior before he is a teacher. Now, a few weeks prior, as we thought about that reality, I said to you, if you you should ever hear an exhortation to follow Jesus' instruction, apart from understanding him first to be a savior, that is the most deadly sermon you would ever hear. If you are ever exhorted to heed the teachings of Christ without first and foremost understanding that he comes to save, that sermon will be to you condemnation. The teachings of Christ will only condemn you if you have not first found him to be a savior. And you need to be honest with yourself and decide whether you have bypassed Jesus as a savior and only ever found him to be a good teacher. Only you can answer that question. Have you taken him in to be someone who has made a payment for your sin? If you have not, 
There is no eternal value in following his good and right teaching. But that principle applies for Christians also. Christians are those that have found Christ to be a saviour who have acknowledged that they have a debt of sin that they cannot pay before a holy God, that they can do nothing to make themselves right with their Creator, but they found in Jesus someone who has done everything. A Christian is someone who has put their faith in Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection as a sufficient payment for their sin. A Christian needs to be someone who is doing that each and every day. Because the grace that comes from seeing Jesus as a Savior is the grace that enables you to obey His commands. Let me say that again. It is critically important for you to understand the grace that comes from seeing Christ for who he truly is, a Savior who has made a payment for sin, the grace that comes and is ministered to your heart through the truth of the gospel is the means by which you obey the commands of Scripture. I have found so often that Christians are pretty good at understanding the need and the place of God's grace as it relates to their justification. Christians can normally articulate their need for grace as it relates to their right standing with God. And in the same breath, they have not understood very well at all the need for God's grace in their perseverance. All too often the reality of the Christian's existence is that they have made an appeal to Christ at the point of salvation. They have received the free gift of eternal life, of sins forgiven, of right standing before God. They see and understand their need for His grace that comes through the gospel of Christ in that moment. And then they set off on the race towards the finish line. And as they do so, they leave Christ the Savior behind. And they wake up and with good intentions, they strive every day to obey the commands of Scripture. But they are doing it in their own strength. Apart from a manifestation of the grace of the gospel afresh in their heart. Jesus, long before he was a teacher, was a redeemer, and he needs to be a redeemer to you every single day. You cannot afford to lose sight of the glory of Christ as a Savior every single day. If you do the commands that he issues to you, which are good and right and for your flourishing, will become to you a burden. This is why so many Christians are walking the Christian walk. And externally it looks like they're living a life of obedience and yet they lack 
all joy. Because they are not fueled by God's grace on a daily basis. They know and they understand what is expected of them as disciples of the Lord Jesus. But because they are not taking in Christ as a Savior, the commands are now heavy on their soul. This is why so many Christians are walking what it seems to be a steadfast path of obedience, and yet they lack all zeal for the things of the Lord. They lack all zeal for the work of the ministry. They lack all zeal to race towards the commands of Scripture because they are walking without a manifestation each and every day of God's grace as it is found in the gospel. You can never get beyond the gospel. If you have been walking with Jesus for two weeks or two months or two years or 20 years, you need to feast upon the gospel. Your utmost priority every single morning needs to be to rise up, to open this book and to see Christ. You have to find Christ and behold his glory as the one that has made a payment for your sin. And I would encourage you, Lord, pray. Pray to God that he would refresh your heart this morning with the truth of the gospel. Because in reality, we are so fickle towards eternally significant truth. We are so easily distracted by the cares of the world. And I don't hold it against you that you would say in all honesty, I just struggle in the morning and with all that is going on and with all the trials that God has given to me, I struggle to get excited about Christ. So pray, God, would you enliven my heart afresh this morning? To see the beauty of my Savior, that he has made a payment for my sin. That I am innocent before you, clothed with his righteousness. That your love is set upon me and I am destined for eternity because of his life. And then would you read and would you see Christ as a Savior? Before you see him as your teacher. Sometimes ask people, what is the Lord doing in your life today? Not what has he done. I would love to hear your testimony of salvation. But tell me, what is he doing in your life today? And if it is hard for you to answer that question. If you draw a blank and you can't quite explain, it may well be because you are not feasting upon the grace of the gospel as a daily reality, but simply in your own strength, striving to obey the commands of Scripture. Jesus went up on the mountain in Moses-like fashion as our Savior, ready then to become our teacher. And so we move on now to the second point. What does this context, these two verses, what does it teach us about the sermon itself? There are many mountains in the Old Testament, not 
just Sinai. And again, if Matthew is leaning into that theme of mountains, the place where God reveals himself and advances redemptive history, it is reasonable to understand that with perhaps Sinai foremost, there are other mountains in view as Matthew records these details. The very first mountain in the Bible is actually found in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You won't find the word mountain, but it is reasonable to conclude that Eden was high up, a lofty place. Culturally, the cultural context into which Moses is writing those first few chapters of Scripture is one wherein gods were understood to have their dwelling place on top of mountains. That was the normal understanding that the mountains were places where gods dwelt. And Moses offers a polemic showing all who would care to read the one true God. And it seems that his dwelling place, Eden, is high up on a mountain. And that's why when you get to chapters like Isaiah 28, the prophet speaks so polemic against the king of Tyre. And he does so in very metaphorical terms, speaking against the king of Tyre in, in a way as if he were Satan being expelled from the garden. And in that chapter, Isaiah says, inspired scripture, you were cast out down from the mountain of the Lord. It's almost a poetic commentary of what happened in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so, as Adam and Eve transgress and they're expelled east of Eden, at the same time, it would seem, they were expelled down the mountain. They had been privileged to dwell on top of the mountain with God. But their sin means now they're forced to descend. And it's fascinating, as you read through the book of Genesis, there is a motif created of traveling east and traveling down. You go east of Eden, and then Cain sins, and he's banished further east of Eden. And there are other episodes where people travel east, and all the while, when they travel down, it is never construed as a positive movement. And the book ends all the way down in Egypt, far away from the promised land. Then we get to the book of Exodus and we come across Mount Sinai. Taken together with the Exodus event, it is the natural end point of God's saving work for his people. He redeems them from slavery out of Egypt. He doesn't leave them in the wilderness. He takes them out of Egypt and he delivers them to a dwelling place, namely a mountain. And he shows them in so doing that he is moving redemptive history forward. You see, after that first transgression in Genesis chapter 3, there is a sense in which the rest of redemptive history can be understood as humanity striving to get back up the mountain. We understand we want to be with God. We want to be dwelling with Him as we once were. And so all throughout the Bible, we see this striving to get back up the mountain and Sinai takes on its redemptive significance because God is saying, I am moving you in that direction. 
The psalmist asks exactly the right question when he says, who can ascend your holy hill? He's asking a a question of enormous theological significance. It is so entrenched in their way of thinking. The Israelites understood the goal. They understood where they had come from and where they wanted to be. And so the psalmist rightly says, who can be with you up there? That's where we all want to be, up the mountain. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Then you get to the prophets. You get to a book like Jonah. And you're saying to me, Jonah has nothing to do with mountains. He goes to sea and then he gets swallowed by a fish. But you have to pay attention to the details. In Jonah chapter 2, Jonah responds to God in prayer and he says, You have caused me to come down to the foot of the mountain. Jonah is having a really bad day at the office. He's just been swallowed by a fish. But he doesn't say to God, you caused me to be swallowed by a fish. He puts it in poetical and metaphorical terms. You have caused me to descend to the foot of the mountain because that is how he is understanding his relationship with God. And then you get to a book like Isaiah. And it seems chapter after chapter after chapter, Isaiah keeps taking us back to the mountain. He is now projecting forward, not so much looking back, but projecting forward as the prophets did, anticipating the inauguration of God's kingdom on earth. And he does so with the holy mountain of the Lord at the center. And so his vision in chapter 6 sees the throne of the Lord high and lifted up above all other mountains. And in chapter 2, The prophet says there is coming a day after these things pass, there is coming a day when the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established above all other mountains and the nations will come and they will say to each other in that day, let us go up to the mountain. They will stream up the mountain. And they will say, let us go up there. Why? So that the Lord will teach us his law. There is a desire from the nations to learn the law of the Lord. Because Isaiah says, chapter 2, from there a law will go out. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah gets it. He is reaching forward and showing us a glorious vision of how redemptive history will culminate. Now, what does all of this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus knew what he was doing when he went up on the mountain to give his law. Jesus was making a theological statement of profound significance when he went up on the mountain to teach his disciples. He is indicating, he is raising a flag, he is putting a marker in the ground, he is putting a signal for all that would read these words, I am moving you towards the eschatological reality of Isaiah chapter 2 as well as many other chapters in the Old Testament, Jesus is making a statement. 
I am the one that you need to cling to, and my word is the word that you need to listen to. Because my teaching is that which will get you to that kingdom. He is not, Jesus is not in any way suggesting that what he is doing here represents the fulfillment of the expectation that is established in chapters like Isaiah 2. Jesus knows that this is not the time for fulfillment. But what he is doing is signaling. He is putting a big arrow in redemptive history saying we're moving in the right direction and the way that you get there is through me, clinging to my teaching. And so you see, when you understand the reality of Jesus ascending the mountain, the forward-looking significance This fundamentally changes how you read his words. Three chapters of teaching, Jesus is not intending to create a burden for us. Three chapters of weighty, heavy commands that are to be to us light. Light in large measure, because we are being fueled by the saving grace of the gospel every day. We find Jesus to be a savior before he is a teacher. But light also because we understand that these are the words that will lead us home. These are the words that will lead us to glory. How will I make it to that last day? The question of perseverance comes into view very quickly when you start to take seriously what Jesus says in this sermon. How will I make sure that I keep treading out a path of obedience and I don't falter and I don't defect and I don't turn along the way? You understand that through these words, Jesus will get you home when he says to you, love your enemies. He's not intending to create a burden for you. This is otherworldly teaching. You don't read this in other world religions. Love your enemies and pray for them. No one ever said that. When he says, turn the other cheek, you were just Struck in the face, how do you respond? Not with anger, not with malice. You turn the other cheek to be struck another time. The world rightly thinks we're crazy because they don't understand where this is coming from or where it is leading. Jesus is giving us good teaching that will lead us all the way to his kingdom. And so, I would encourage you, as you think about this sermon, I would encourage you to be reading this sermon as we embark upon it for weeks and months ahead now. Be reading this sermon, and each and every time you open your Bible, just minister to your own heart the truth that Jesus is my Savior. He has paid for my sins. And through this word, 
He intends to lead me home. Preach to yourself. Don't trust your flesh as you race to your Bible each morning. Preach, hit pause, and minister to your own heart. Christ is my Savior. My sins are forgiven. And he gives me this word so as to lead me to glory. And with that message embedded in your heart and your mind, run towards the imperatives that Christ issues in these chapters. That is when you will be able to sing with full voice songs that we have sung already this morning. We will feast In the house of Zion. What did that song mean to you as you sang it this morning? Not what did we intend for it to mean. We pray over the service. We plan the service. There is nothing happening here that is by accident. Everything is designed to focus our hearts and our minds on the truth of the message. And knowing the reality of these two verses, it was right that this morning we sang, we will feast in the house of Zion, taken from another mountain passage in Isaiah chapter 25. Did you sing it with a firm belief that one day very soon we will be in Christ's kingdom, feasting with the king? Or did you do what the easiest thing is to do, which is to show up to church and to go through the motions and to open your lips and to sing words as if they have no eternal meaning? Minister to your heart the reality that these words of Christ will lead you home and with full voice proclaim that one day very soon we will be feasting with the King. Jesus went up onto the mountain Forging this parallel with Moses, Christ our Savior. Giving us a teaching that stretches forward to the realization of his kingdom on earth. And thirdly, teaching us more of what it means to be his disciples. Third point, what do we learn about this context setting passage as it relates to Jesus' disciples, those who are being taught. I mentioned a few weeks ago that the sermon, first and foremost, is directed to his disciples. You'll notice in verse 1, his disciples came to him, and on that basis, he opens his mouth and begins to teach. The sermon is directed first and foremost to the disciples. And the only possible way you have of obeying the commands is by first being saved by his grace. It does seem, though, as you keep moving through the sermon, that the, the tone, the approach starts to shift somewhat. You'll notice that towards the end of the sermon, it begins to get very evangelistic. Jesus starts to speak about the tree and its fruit. He speaks about those who will proclaim, Lord, Lord, and he'll respond, I never knew you. And then he teaches what it is to build your house on the rock as opposed to the sand. It gets very evangelistic towards the end. Most likely, 
Because as Jesus was teaching on the mountain to his disciples, the crowds are gathering. The crowds are now gathering around him and Jesus, fully aware of their eternal standing, concludes the sermon by making plain to them the choice they have to make between him and another way. But as it relates to his disciples, one emphasis that we see throughout the sermon is its others-orientated nature. A lot of Jesus' teaching in this sermon concerns our interaction with others. He talks about anger and how we are to respond to those that we would be tempted to, to be angry at. He talks about lust and how we are to think about other people. He talks about divorce in the context of marriage and oaths and what it means to give your word to someone else. He talks about retaliation and how we respond to someone that has wronged us. He gives the imperative to love our enemies and to pray for them. He talks about giving to those who are in need. Much of the sermon is wrapped up in the fact that we live in community with others around us. We're not isolated. In fact, if you look down to verse 15 and following, Jesus actually gives, at least in part, one of the reasons why he would be so concerned for his disciples to live well in community. Verse 16, let your light shine before others. Obey my ethic, obey my commands, do what I'm telling you to do. Let your light shine before others. Why? so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. At least in part, one of the reasons that Christ issues this kingdom ethic to his disciples is in order that their lives would be found attractive, so that other people who are not yet part of the kingdom would look at his disciples and say, they have something that I don't have and I want it that they would look at his disciples and say, tell me about your God. And this fits in accordance with that glorious vision taken from Isaiah chapter 2. When the prophet looks forward to the mountain, he doesn't say the disciples are streaming up it. He says the nations. Somehow between this moment and the realization of Isaiah's vision, somehow between the two, there has been a gathering in of the nations. So that now the Jews and the Gentiles are saying one to another, let's all go up to the mountain. It sets in perfect accordance with Matthew's emphasis. From the very first verse onward, he has been laboring that this gospel is not for the Jews alone. But he stresses to us in many different ways, this gospel is to go to the Gentiles. And it sits in perfect accordance with the rest of Jesus' teaching to his disciples throughout the gospel. This is not the last time Jesus will instruct his disciples from a mountain. He will lead his disciples up to a mountain that they would bear witness to his transfiguration, his future glory. He will lead his disciples up onto the mountain so as to teach them about the days to come, the Olivet Discourse. And perhaps most notably, Matthew's gospel ends with Jesus and the disciples 
on top of the mountain. It is on the mountain that Jesus summons his disciples and gives them their very last instruction recorded for us by Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, for that reason, based on the authority given to me, therefore go, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have taught you with this sermon in hand. Go and make disciples. Compel them to come into the kingdom. Tell them about the grace of the cross and then teach them to obey and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. Jesus gives that great commission from a mountain and that is not incidental. As he prepares to ascend unto heaven, he hands over the baton to the disciples and says, now it is on you. You need to make disciples. You need to go to the nations and make my glory known and compel them to take up their cross and follow after me. And so, as we note in verse 1 of chapter 5, that Jesus went up onto the mountain. It instructs us to have a zeal to make God's grace known to those who don't yet know him. It is an implicit exhortation if you follow the trajectory of this narrative. It is an exhortation that we would not be content to live out our Christianity in isolation from the world in which God has placed us but rather we would understand the responsibility given to us in so much as we are recipients of saving grace, that we would be zealous to make that grace known, that we would be wildly evangelistic in our Christianity, that each and every opportunity we proclaim the truth of Christ, And we show people through our actions how good it is to live under his law. This is what it means to be a disciple receiving teaching from Jesus who went up the mountain. May our love for Christ increase. Our teaching, our understanding of his teaching increase and our steadfastness as disciples increase let's pray now to close father we give you thanks this morning for matthew chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 context setting for the sermon on the mount but not insignificant, theologically loaded. Jesus went up onto the mountain. He presented himself in the likeness of Moses. Yes, as a teacher of the law, but first and foremost, as a redeemer. Father, lead our hearts to ever behold Christ as a savior, every day drinking of the grace of the gospel as the very means by which we might obey 
his commands. Father, as he went up onto the mountain, we see the goodness of his commands in that they are designed to lead us home. May we ever run towards obedience to Christ, understanding his grace towards us, even in his teaching, the very means by which we may persevere unto that last day. And as Jesus went up onto the mountain, we project forward and we see how at the end of this gospel narrative, he will commission his disciples from the mountain. Go and make disciples of all the nations with this sermon, with my teaching. Tell them the glory of Christ. Father, may it be true of us that we obey the call to spread the fame of Christ to the nations. Work in us a desire, a zeal to make your glory known through your Son. And in all of this, may we find great joy We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.